in Christ, not the one that we are anticipating for the first advent, but the one who has come and whose second advent we await with joy. Illumine our minds, help us to see this text, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Psalm 91, hear now the word of God. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. You look at a Christian bookstore, if you dare to enter, and you will see a variety of thematic study Bibles. The, perhaps the gold standard today, for a while, has been the Reformation Study Bible. There is the Apologetics Study Bible, the Archaeological Study Bible, the Action Study Bible, the Spirit-Filled Life Bible, which makes me wonder, are the other study Bibles not filled with the Spirit? <laughs> the Chronological Study Bible, the Fire Bible, must be uh, a reference to the Pentecost, or the Voice Study Bible, and there are many others. In fact, I, pers- I recently just purchased a, another study Bible. It was a life, life and counseling study Bible or something like that. A lot of counseling articles at the end, and the notes are geared towards soul care. And as you know, we live in a military town. If we were to make a thematic version of the Bible whose audience is the military, we could take our psalm this evening for the theme of such a Bible. Our psalm, after all, has been called the soldier's psalm. And in this soldier's psalm, God, through the psalmist, whoever he might be, reminds us that our God is a divine warrior in whose mighty fortress we may take refuge and with whom we may fight against the attacks of the enemy. In our text this evening, there are four pictures of who this divine warrior is. He is our refuge, 
He is our protector. He is our overseer. And he is our deliverer. This text is structured around three speakers. Perhaps you noticed that as I was reading. You might have wondered, well, who's speaking at this point? And there's a, there's a switch of speaker. We have three speakers. We have the faithful follower of God. We have the psalmist. We also have the, the listener, the, the reader of the psalm, the one who's interacting with the psalmist. And then we have God himself who speaks. The point this evening is that because God is our refuge, protector, overseer, and deliverer, we are secure in Christ. So the first speaker in this psalm is the faithful follower of God. And he says in verse 1, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. This follower will dwell in the shelter of the Most High. He will abide in the shadow of God Almighty. This follower has made his permanent dwelling place, divine shelter, God's covering. This is the hiding place of the Almighty and Most High God. This hiding place doesn't belong to just any supposed divine being. Rather, it belongs to El Elyon, God Most High. He is the highest. He is the most exalted. He is God above all the gods, for all the gods of the people are false idols. They are nothing. They're nobodies. But he alone is true. And this God most high is also El Shaddai. He is the all-powerful, all-sufficient God. He alone has all power to make good on all the promises that he makes, for he alone has dominion everywhere and over everyone, over everything. And we're told that the one who trusts in El Shaddai and El Elyon makes a confident confession in verse 2. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. I trust. What a confession. Quite the confession that you would want to put on some currency, wouldn't you? In God, I trust. This man knows that if he trusts in the Most High, Almighty God, then the Lord will forever be his refuge, forever his fortress, and forever his God, because God always keeps all of his promises. The Almighty is the mountainous stronghold to which this faithful follower may flee for safety. The Most High is a strong tower, the city with unbreakable walls in which this psalmist is secure. He is hidden in God. The God with infinite power is his God, and he belongs to the Almighty. This isn't just a blessed truth for this man alone. Anyone who truly confesses, verse 2, will enjoy and experience, verse 1. Anyone who truly confesses, God, you are my refuge, God, you are my fortress, God, you are my God, and in you do I trust, will know that God to be one in whom 
in whose shadow he can dwell, in whose shelter he can run for refuge. Only those who put their trust in the God Most High, in God Almighty, will find shelter. He is ours, and we are his. And so we could sing, even though some of us might no longer be children, we can sing the kids' song that some of us were, were taught, I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery, I may never zoom over the enemy, but I'm the Lord's army. He is our divine warrior. We are his. And all those who take refuge and shelter in the Almighty can trust in him because he is their protector, as we see in verses 3 through 8. God is our protector. The one with all power will deliver you, will protect you from the snare of the fowler and from pestilence. Children and adults, if you don't know what the word is, Pestilence has to do with diseases and plagues. And a fowler is a bird hunter. Hopefully you guys, uh, maybe, you, maybe you didn't know that. I had to learn that myself. Artemis Fowl is a book. I always thought it had to do with a bird, but I'm told it doesn't. That's another story. But here in this psalm, the imagery is of a small, weak bird that's resting from its flight, just walking on the ground, is looking for food, and suddenly it is ensnared in a bird trap by a skillful hunter, a fowl. But God, we're told, this psalm, God most high, will protect his faithful fowl, his little birds from these traps, from ultimate destruction. Your protector, we're told here as well, will cover you with his pinions under his wings, for his faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. And so the Almighty God is compared to a mother bird who protects her baby bird just in the nick of time. Now, you already heard one story about uh, my recent... um, attack from a bird, the one that was, which hounded me week after week until the baby bird was out of the nest. That wasn't my first encounter with a bird, an angry bird, a protective bird. I remember years ago when I was in Arizona playing golf. I was on the 18th green, uh, 18th tee box rather, and I was about to, about to hit the ball. But the corner of my eye, right eye, I saw a little bird at the tee box. And hey, golf clubs, maybe somebody would be vicious and want to hurt this little baby bird. And I did not want to be one of those. I wanted to protect this bird. And so I went over to it, went down. I was going to scoop it up. And then all of a sudden, comes swooping down the bird that, again, I didn't. I was clueless to where it was. And it almost took my head off. And I was reminded then, as I was reminded just recently as well, that these mother birds are very protective birds. And they really care for their young. And how much more then, God, who doesn't just have the threat of swooping down, because 
almost any time that a bird has tried to come and get me, he has timed or she has timed you know, her, her wings in such a way where it just swoops and maybe just grazes my, my cheek or hits me at the top of the head but doesn't actually want to make contact with me because I am bigger than it is. So it's not just a threat. It's not a scare tactic. God truly does have all power to protect us. We are such small, frail creatures, and God knows that. God cares for us. He is a protective shield. He is faithfully and unfailingly deflecting the arrows of the enemy. These verses portray our God as loyal, as sufficient, as tender, as protective, as we continue in this psalm with these verses on God as our protector, the imagery moves to warfare. With God as our protector, we're told we, need not need, we don't need to fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow in the day. That debilitating fear that accompanies all those who await their enemies on the outside of their walls, that calm before the storm of the enemy. That, that fear, we're told, is unwarranted when it comes to the enemies against us. It's unwarranted because the Lord will protect his faithful through the night. It's no wonder we sing hymn number 92 regularly. Our God is as a mighty fortress. Although the enemies pound and thunder at the walls of our souls, the Lord's people do not fear because theirs is a mighty fortress. Ours is a mighty fortress. And this is 24-7 protection. Anything less would be detrimental to us, wouldn't it? There's no consolation, really, for those who are protected only for a short period of time, only to be vanquished and overcome, sold into slavery, all ultimately destroyed. No. God, our mighty king, will never sleep on the job. We see in the psalm, a thousand may fall at our side, even 10,000 at our right hand, but destruction will not come near. This is quite paradoxical. Picture here is of thousands of enemies dropping like flies just before our feet. Certainly a scary thought for them to be so close to us. But the point is that even though the enemy may come near you, God's protection is stronger than the strikes of the enemy, and God's presence is closer. You might feel the enemy's breath on your neck, but the one who breathed out his word, indwells you, and so he is closer still. All we have to do, we're told, is to look in front of us and see the recompense of the wicked. That is to say, the the wicked receiving their just penalty for their wickedness and their um, refusal to submit to the king. It is the faithful who will live, while the wicked and the unrepentant are finally defeated. Our God is our protector. And we move now to the second speaker of the psalm in verses 9 through 13. The audience. The audience responds to this faithful follower, and in this reply, the picture is now that of God as our overseer. Look at verses 9 and 10. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, 
No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. The audience here assures the follower that he has indeed made the Lord his refuge. Because the faithful one has done this, there is assurance that no evil shall be allowed to befall him, that no plague shall come near his tent. The psalmist is no doubt, he no doubt has in mind the, the awful plagues that once befell ancient Egypt, yet did not touch Israel. Even though they got super close, Israel was unfazed, unaffected. It's a simple task of the Almighty to stop any evil that threatens to undo us. It simply takes a sovereign's say-so, that no evil shall be allowed to befall his faithful ones. And his people have this assurance that the Lord will crush any impending evil because of what we see in verses 11 and 12. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. This passage might be the closest thing to the idea of having a personal guardian angel. I don't know if I shared this with, with you before. I might have. But when I was in seminary, you know, seminarians and theologians, we, we talk about the finer points of doctrine, the theological minutiae. And one of those would be the question, does every person have his own you know, personal guardian angel? Denzel Washington, whatever that movie is called, I can't remember. Do we get our own? And the professor uh, answered the question something like, I think the angels play zone defense rather than man-to-man coverage. <laughs> Such a theological answer. So rich with scripture. <laughs> if he was allowed to speculate, I, Maybe I'm allowed to speculate as well. I don't think it's zone defense or man-to-man coverage. I don't think it's one individual, angel per person. I think instead that we have tons of angels surrounding us all the time. We just can't see them. There's a whole host of angels. And the Lord has given them to us. Christ is better than the angels. But the angels serve a purpose. The Lord shows us his care for us by sending his angels to guard us in all our ways, to bear us up, we're told. And in Hebrews 1.14, it says that angels are ministering spirits. Yes, they minister to God. They, they worship the Son of God, who is far superior to them. But they are also gifts from the same, from the Son of God, gifts for us, to minister to us. We just don't see them. Imagine if we did see them, we would be terrified. These aren't the little cute little cherubim uh, that we have figurines of. No, these are huge, I'm assuming, okay. These are huge, mighty um, angels that are equipped for battle, battle against the demons. But notice the kind of care that God provides through his angels. He's looking after the littlest of things. Your foot will not even come against a stone. Now, these verses are very familiar to the student of Scripture because 
we see them in that great chapter, Matthew 4, of the temptations of Jesus. In Matthew 4, verses 5 through 7, that's where we read them. Surprise, surprise. The devil misuses the Word of God. He abuses the Word of God as he tempts Jesus. Remember, he says, just throw yourself down. It doesn't matter. You have angels, they'll bear you up. Doesn't, your, doesn't the Bible say that you'll be, you'll be protected? Just go ahead. Cast yourself off. Let them carry you on eagles' wings, angels' wings. But God's precious word is never meant to give Christians a, a cavalier attitude towards danger. It's foolishness for a believer to drive on the wrong side of the road thinking, well, God says he'll send me his angels. It really doesn't matter if I'm on the right side or on the left side. It doesn't matter how fast I go. The Lord will protect me. I have the promise here in Psalm 91. Come on, angels. Earn your keep. No, it's foolishness. We don't put God to the test. That's exactly what Jesus says. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Well, we come to this text, we acknowledge the suffering in the world. The struggling believer might say, well, yes, God offers protection. Yes, it is utter stupidity to put God to the test. But how can Psalm 91 be an accurate picture of God's protection when we see his faithful followers persecuted, when when we see them deprived of their basic needs, when we see them tortured, when we see them killed? There is such a thing as the persecuted church. And this is an excellent question, isn't it? You look at the book of Job, and you wonder, how how can this man who is righteous, who is faithful, how can he suffer so much? Or you look around you, you look at your own life, you look around you, and and you know others who who are faithful to God, and they seem to be most severely afflicted. And you might be tempted to ask, well, what did they do to earn that affliction? Where did they go wrong? Well, perhaps the answer is, well, maybe they're doing something right. That then warrants that attack. Maybe the devil sees the faithful one as a, as a threat to the devil's cause. But still, there is suffering. Still, there is great affliction. We acknowledge that evil, yes, even great evil will come near us. That's why we hide in the refuge and fortress that is our God. If there's no evil, then there is no need for the refuge. If there's no threat, then there's no reason to hide. And in the picture of the new heavens and new earth, is that there aren't any of the gates. There aren't any of the walls. Why? Because there's no more threat. Persecution is promised in the Scriptures. God's people are deprived of their needs. God's people are tortured for the sake of Christ. Arrows truly do sink into their chests, and they are killed. In verse 15, God says that he will be with his follower in trouble. In other words, trouble will come. So we can't take this psalm as a promise that you will not have any trouble at all. Though we might like to have a carefree, troubleless life, that's not 
our lot in life. But what does God promise through it all? He promises his presence in all of it. His presence is greater than any other presence. Even though he might seem very distant because there is trouble, sometimes we are we're confused by the trial and we say, God, where are you? You must be away if I'm suffering like this. No, perhaps God is actually most close to you, most near you when you are in that pain. And so we could say with Job that though God slay us, yet we shall hope in him. And remember, this is why I had the, the affirmation of faith from the confession of faith this, earlier today. God is not merely concerned about this life, about physical pain, although he cares for our bodies. His ultimate concern is not preserving us from all physical pain. Physical death isn't the end. If it were, we should immediately abandon all semblance of hope. But physical death becomes actually a gift from God to take us from this life, again, full of thorns and thistles, and transfer us into his heavenly home where there are no more tears, where there is no more sorrow. And so we need to take the psalm this way that we can be confident that God is in control and that God watches over us in all that happens to us and he is sovereignly present in all of it and he has the power to carry out his will and he always carries out his will for his glory and our ultimate good. So then we must come to the conclusion that whatever this trouble is that doesn't come as close to us as God's presence does, whatever this trouble is must be for the glory of God. Whatever this affliction is must be for our good. And that's where you have the fight of contentment. The fight that by faith we are joyfully content with what God has given us, with where God has placed us. And we do this from the posture of faith based on Christ's promise. He says in John 16, you will have tribulation in this world, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Not only are God's people promised protection and oversight, but they are assured of victory. Verse 13, you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent, you will trample underfoot. The faithful are more than conquerors. They trample on the lion and the adder. The adder, by the way, is a snake. Of course, this is not to be taken literally. We wouldn't want you to be stepping on lions as some might handle snakes. Though sometimes snakes are a threat. And I heard just today that one of our own had to terminate a snake. It was in the, out, it was in the backyard of, of the home. And he protected his wife by destroying that snake. Such dominion, such Genesis 3.15. So what does this verse point to? But the offspring of the woman who would one day crush the head of the serpent. 
Jesus crushing Satan's head. It is no mystery why the devil doesn't quote verse 13, but he is very happy quoting verses 11 and 12. He loves 11 and 12. He loves to to say, hey, Jesus, throw yourself off. It's going to be okay. Angels will come. Your, Your word says the angels will come. They'll bear you up. He focuses on verses 11 and 12. But he is selective. He doesn't quote verse 13, which pictures his demise, doesn't it? If he reads this, he knows it's there. And if he were honest, he'd say, ooh, I'm done for. That's exactly what Christ does. He treads on the lion and the adder. He takes down that serpent. The Messiah, the greater lion of Judah, bites the head off of the lion who seeks someone to devour. And as we trust in this long-for Waited Messiah, Jesus Christ. We share in his dominion as we proclaim the gospel of victory over sin and death. Well, in these final verses, 14 through 16, we see God as our deliverer. Finally, God is speaking in response to the words, this confession, the prayer of the faithful follower. Now, even that needs some modification. Finally, God speaks because this is all, all of this is a psalm, and it is inspired. It is all God-breathed. So all of this is God speaking. But in this dialogue, you have God uh, speaking to the psalmist. Verse 14, he will be our deliverer. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. As we trust in him, As we hold fast to our almighty God in love, he is faithful to deliver us. He will protect us because we know his name. We have that special relationship with him as our God most high. That glorious name that we spoke about this morning, that we wouldn't uh, wouldn't take in vain, that is upon us. To be called Christian is a grace. Because we belong to him, and he to us, the Lord promises to deliver us and be with us forever. Verse 15, when he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. He is faithful to answer all of our cries for mercy. He is faithful to answer all of our, how long, O Lords. There is no such thing as unanswered prayers of the righteous, of the faithful. They do avail. God does answer in his time for his glory, for our good. We will be rescued, we see this. But it is more than a deliverance, isn't it? We will also be honored. We will also be glorified. I will rescue him and honor him. All of those who are justified end up in the great golden chain of redemption, end up being glorified. All those who are delivered are not simply rescued. Their lives are not simply preserved. Those preserved lives go from one degree of glory to the next, where we are like the Son of God, where we will have resurrected bodies one day as well. A glorious Quite literally, if we're using the word literally properly. 
how literally glorious that is. As we cling to Christ, as we hold fast to Him as our God, He will satisfy us and show us salvation. He will satisfy our heart's deepest need of reconciliation with Him. He will satisfy us with the most precious relationship with the most precious one, with Himself. You cannot do any better than God. And He has given you Himself. To be truly satisfied... To be fully satisfied, we need the Lord. That's why verse 16, with long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. To know real deep satisfaction, true eternal life is to know the Lord. This is our God. He is our refuge. He is our protector. He is our overseer. He is our deliverer. And God is all of these to us only because of the person and work of Christ. Indeed, it is Christ who fulfills perfectly these promises of God. God promises to be our refuge. He promises to be our protector. He promises to oversee us. He promises to deliver us. Were it not for Christ's perfect life and his costly death, God could not rightly promise us these blessings. His divine refuge, his perfect protection, his clear oversight, his ultimate deliverance. He could not promise us those were not for Christ. We would be eternally estranged from God, as we confessed just a little bit ago. What he could promise us is his holy hatred. What he could promise us is an eternity in hell, because that is what we deserve. And he could make good on that promise. But we're thankful that not only is he a God of justice, but he is a God of grace. And that he meets, that he fulfills justice and meets out grace because of Christ. By God's grace, he has given us his son. And the Father has given us his son as our refuge. And so now we're told to abide in Christ because he is the true temple and a strong tower. The Father has given us his Son as our protector. We are reminded that no one could snatch us out of his hand. The Father has given us his Son as our overseer. He oversees our souls because he is the good shepherd of the sheep. The Father has given us his Son as our deliverer. By his death and resurrection, our Messiah has delivered us from our sin, from the world, from our former father, the devil, and from the white-hot wrath of the Father. Beloved, you have no reason to fear. You have no reason to doubt the strength of God. He is your perfect, unconquerable warrior. So hide in God, for he is your faithful fortress. He is your righteous refuge. Let's pray. Our beautiful God, our strong God, we thank you that we have these promises in this psalm, promises that are fulfilled for us because of what Christ has done for us. Help us, Lord, to appreciate these more and more. Help us to run into the refuge that is our God. Help us to see the righteousness of Christ with greater clarity and with heightened worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.